I want to shift toward the scriptures now, and before I read John 14, uh, lead into it in a couple of ways. Um, some of you will know, those who've known me for a while and heard my testimony, that there was a time when I would have said that uh, I had a Star Wars view of God, that I would have said God was very powerful and a force out there, but I would not have believed nor said that he was personal and up close. The orthodox teaching, of course, is that God is a person, that God exists eternally as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, he is the infinite personal God. He is transcendent and he is imminent. He is close. He's not just a force. We sang in the first song, the Lord omnipotent is king. That is true. He is powerful, but he's not just powerful. He's a person. He's not an emanation or a platonic idea. He's more than a creed or a thought. Our God, the only God, is a person. And humans made in his image are also persons. Now, one of the things, I uh, can't remember, Carl, whether you said this or not, I teach seniors at a Christian school in Beaverton, Oregon, uh, it's called St. Stephen's Academy. I teach apologetics to the seniors. And this past spring, I had them read this little book, Can Science Explain Everything by John Lennox. Now, John Lennox is a professor emeritus of uh, mathematics at um, uh, Oxford University in England and some other things. Um, he's written a, a larger version of this book. This is the Cliff Notes version. That's really not like this one. Um, but the larger version is a book. It's called God's Undertaker Has Science Buried God? And, of course, uh, being a Christian apologist, his answer is no. God, science has not buried God. Uh, can science explain everything? No, science can't explain everything. But very near the end of this book, um, Professor Lennox writes this. And it's about human relationships. He says, there comes a point in personal relationships, after having checked out as much as possible every detail, when we have to give up our distance and come close in order to make progress. He says, you will never get to know me or anyone else if you remain at a distance. If you wish to get to know me, you will have to take the step of giving up your distance from me and engage with me in conversation. You can't, cannot even know what a relationship is without engagement. It is the same with God. It is the same with God. And that really piqued my interest, and it led me to go back to John 14 and dig a little deeper and a little more completely perhaps around the question, how do persons get to know one another? How do persons get to know one another? Let's pray and ask God's help. We'll read the text and then we'll have a look at it, okay? Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for this word which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we pray that you will illuminate it to our understanding, that you will open us to you, that you will make us willing to have relationship with you. 
that you will make us hungry indeed for relationship with you and that you will speak as your servants listen. Use a redeemed crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, this is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. I've asked Cameron to print out the whole chapter, but I'm only going to read the first 11 verses, and then I'll refer to some other things in the chapter later in the message, okay? God's Word, John 14, at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade away, but this is God's word. It will never fade away. It will abide forever and forever. Think of this. Somewhere about between the fifth grade and junior high school, a guy gets a crush on a girl, but he's shy, and he won't talk to her. Some of you have experienced that. We're not going to ask for a show of hands. But he won't talk. Well, how do they communicate? Well, via their friends, right? He talks to his friends, and she talks to her friends, and the friends talk, but the two of them never talk. What kind of relationship will they have? The answer is, not very much. Why? No words. No words. Think of another situation. Uh, When I was younger, and people used to ask me for advice about dating and getting to know people the opposite gender, they don't ask me anymore, I've gotten a little old, you know, and People don't ask, but when they did, I would say, well, one of the things you need to do is see the other person in as many different contexts as possible. Don't just dress up, go out for a hamburger, and go to a movie, but go do this and go do that and go do this other thing so that you see them in different contexts. And so when different uh, unexpected things come up in those contexts, you can get to know the person as they really are because you can't act forever, right? And those instances reveal who the other person is. And why am I telling you that? Well, it goes back to this Lennox quote, doesn't it? To get to know someone, you cannot keep your distance. You must step close in order to see what is there. 
And I hope because I've illustrated the importance of words and works in getting to know another person. You might say, and I think you should say, that words and works are what reveal the other person to us. Neither alone is sufficient. People can speak good words and then be frauds. So you need words that are followed up by works and not works alone because you won't understand without the words. So you need both. Knowing Jesus is just the same. That's why he talked so much about words and works. And to get to know him, we must listen to his words and we must observe his works. And he says, astoundingly, the words I speak are the Father's words. And the works I do are the Father's works. And if you want to know what the Father's like, says Jesus, look at me and listen to me. We sang, Chris, this is another one of these times when the Holy Spirit just puts it all together. At the, the second song we sang, faith he gives us to believe, hearing ears and seeing eyes. With our ear, we hear his words. With our eyes of faith, we see his works. And that's what it takes to get to know someone else. Look at the text, if you will, in John uh, 14, at verse 7. Uh, Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says, I have, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So you've got this, this juxtaposition of word and works right there in that verse. And I'm going to show you later how you find similar things in other parts of John's gospel. But I want to back up and, and, and note the historical context here and talk about the crises, plural, the crises that they faced at this juncture in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. There's an immediate crisis, and there's an ultimate crisis. The immediate crisis is what? Jesus is going away. The ultimate crisis is they don't know the Father. The immediate crisis, Jesus is going away. The ultimate crisis, they don't know the Father. Now, it's important that you not let an immediate crisis keep you from considering the ultimate crisis, the ultimate issues. You know, we, you, get a, you have a cut or break a bone, you run off to the ER. Those are immediate crises. But these bigger issues like, is there a God? Who is God? Who is Jesus? Is there a way to be saved? How can I be saved? How can I know God? And when you let the immediate crowd out the ultimate and fail to consider these ultimate issues, you make a big and great mistake. I hope that's not you. But if it is, I hope God will use this text to help you to consider the ultimate as well as these immediate. Let's look at the immediate crisis then that Jesus is going away. They've been called by him from their former lives. They've left everything and they've followed him. They've confessed him as the Christ, though they do not fully understand what that means. They're hoping for salvation from the Romans through him. Jesus is departing from them via the cross. 
to the Father. We know that that's good news, but they don't know it. They're still seeing through a mirror very, very dimly. And they don't see the good news in Jesus departing to the Father through the cross. And so this is a crisis for them. And they certainly don't see the Father. Philip says, show us the Father, it's enough for us. And Jesus said, here I am. Here I am. And they just kind of don't get it. Okay. So how does Jesus deal with the first crisis, the immediate crisis, that he's going away? And the answer is he preaches to them. He preaches to them. And the first thing he says in John 14, verse 1, the first part of verse 1, is he tells them, control your hearts. Control your hearts. Let not your hearts be troubled. Look at verse 27. It's also printed for you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, certainly they need that. They are very troubled that Jesus is going away. And frankly, we understand that because when loved ones of ours have gone away, we've been troubled too. Uh, Yesterday, I got a text in the morning that the wife of one of the elders in Oregon, a man 90, 91, 92 years old, had died. And so, uh, last night at a wedding uh, reception, I slipped out and made a call to him. Bob, I'm so sorry for your loss. And, and he said, well, he was more a father to me than my father. And, and so we had a chat, and, and a man was going away. And hearts are liable to be troubled in that context. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, so we assume it's possible to do this, but it's difficult to do this. We all know that. It's very difficult to deal with your own heart. The Psalms are full of times when the psalmist is dealing with his heart. You say, yeah, it's easy for Jesus to say because he's Jesus, right? Well, yeah, but Jesus knows what it is to have a troubled heart. Back in John 12, At verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He's going to the cross. He knows what's going to happen. He knows they're going to put his hands up there and nail them to the the cross. He knows they're going to hoist him up. He knows he's going to bleed out there on the cross. And his heart is troubled. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But, he says, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Right there. Right there. He got control of his heart. But as he looked at the cross, his heart was troubled. Over in John 13, at verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. He's troubled because Judas is going to betray him. Judas has been with him. We assume Judas was a very trusted man in the apostolic band. He kept the purse. We assume he was respected and somewhat honored. But he's going to, he's going to, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knows that. And his heart is troubled. And he brings, he reigns his heart in. You and I have to do those sorts of things. Jesus has been tempted in all things like as we are, yet without sin. So that's the first thing he preaches to them. Control your heart. And we need to pray for one another that in those times of crisis, we can control our hearts. 
The second thing he preaches to them is stir up your faith and believe the promises. Stir up your faith and believe the promises. Again, in verse 1 of chapter 14, believe in God, believe also in me. And in verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe me that I'm going to the Father by way of the cross and it will atone for your sins. That I am going to prepare a place for you, a good place, a great place, a secure place, a place of plenty, a place of love, a place of relationship. That's what he says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? I'm going to prepare a place for you in the Father's house, in God's house. So you can live with God forever and ever and ever. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. If I ask in this congregation, do you believe Jesus is coming back? Almost every hand would go up, right? You believe Jesus is coming back. If I ask you, is Jesus coming back looking for you and you and you, would you believe that? We tend to aggregate ourselves, which we should. But to think, he went away and he personally prepared a place for me and he's coming back to get me, to take me to that place. March 23, 2003, private first class Jessica Lynch was in a resupply convoy in Iraq and they turned the wrong way. They confronted Iraqi military. She was captured. Her back was broken. Her legs, her ankles and feet were crushed. She's had 15 to 25 surgeries. I really don't know how many she's had. Nine days later, April 1st, I'm not fooling, April 1st, 2003, Special Forces U.S. Army in the first successful POW rescue since World War II showed up where she was. Said, Jessica, we're from the U.S. Army. We're here to take you home. And someday, Jesus will show up and he will say to you, if you know him, I'm from God and I'm here to take you home. Now, do you believe that? That's what he's trying to work into their troubled souls. That's what he's preaching to them to relieve their anxiety in this crisis. I'm going to go away. I'm going to prepare the room. I'll make the bed. I'll turn it down. I'll put a glass of water there. I'm being a little anthropomorphic, but I want you to get it. And I'm going to come back for you to take you to that prepared place. And by the way, while I'm gone, I didn't read this part, but down in verses 16 and following, said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you while I'm away. The Holy Spirit is the earnest, the down payment of your inheritance. The Holy, Holy Spirit is the guarantee that I'm going to come back. You know, when you make a down payment on a house, you're saying, I'm going to show up on the final day and, and sign the line, or you can have my money. And, and the Holy Spirit is called, the Greek word is the same. It's the earnest of our inheritance. He is the guarantee that Jesus is going to show back up and take us to be with himself. This spirit will be with us, a spirit of comfort, a spirit of mission, a spirit of 
for holy living, a spirit for power. And while I'm gone, says Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in life and nothing in death and nothing in things present and nothing in things to come. And no crisis can separate you from God's love. And that's what he preaches to them. Get control of your hearts. Believe the promises. Stir up your faith. Right? That's what he's doing. Now, why does that mean more to us? I'm going to suggest a thing, one thing. If you look at the end of the book of Revelation, you find the saints crying, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you went and talked to um, incarcerated Christians in China, what would they be praying? Come, Lord Jesus. The saints throughout all the ages have prayed, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Why do people in suburban Portland and over the mountain Birmingham not pray that very frequently? Because we've got a pretty good life. We've got a pretty good life. And the immediate is bigger to us than the ultimate. The status quo is desired often more than the consummation. As one man wrote it, the irony of our situation is that our love of privileges has not, by and large, produced any more triumphant faith, any more spiritual serenity than would otherwise be the case. Quite the reverse, we have fomented a neurotic generation of malcontents. I'm guilty. <laughs> I'm guilty. Maybe you are too. So, the first crisis is what? Jesus is going away, and he preaches to them, Right? Let not your heart be troubled. Stir up your faith. Believe the promises. How does he handle the second crisis? Show us the Father. We want to see the Father. Uh, the medievals used to write, write about what they called the beatific vision. When we see God, if we can be with God, uh, at your right hand there's fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And so the saints throughout all the years have longed to be with God. Philip, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough. How does Jesus deal with that? Well, I'm going to say something about that in a minute, but I want to lead up to that with a couple of thoughts, okay? Here's the thoughts. First one, no one is able to get to know anyone else unless that other person will let you get to know them. Say that again. No one gets to know anyone else unless that person allows himself or herself to be known. Right? Go back to the seventh grade boy or sixth grade boy or fifth grade boy. He's got a crush on the girl and he won't say a word. If he won't open up, if he won't allow you in, so to speak, you'll never get to know him. Never get to know her. Some of you don't know me. Some of you know me too well. So if the, those of you who don't know me wanted to try to get to know me, you might say things like, well, what's it like in Oregon? I said, well, it's a real mixed bag. And if you said to me, what do you think of the politics in Oregon? And, you know, you're really scratching on a, on a sore there, you know. And I'd say, I'm not going to say a word. But if I opened up, you'd pretty quickly find out some things about me and what I think about the politics in Oregon. No one gets to know anyone else unless that other person opens up and lets them know them. And there's a corollary to that, which is my second point, and I owe this one to 
Dr. J.I. Packer, in his wonderful book, Knowing God, he says, it is especially true that you cannot get to know another person if that person is of a higher station or a higher place than you are. And Packer's illustration is the Queen of England, which he's British, so you would expect that. He says, how are you going to get to know the Queen unless she allows you to get to know her? Unless she says, come close. Unless she reveals herself to you. Unless she says, come to Windsor Castle, let's have tea. Let's, let's go to Balmoral in Scotland and let's, let's shoot a little bit. And let's drive around the estate. Come and let's have conversation. And you say, well, that's never going to happen. I know. It's not. Not for you, me or not for you. I don't know all of you, but I don't think any of you got an end with the queen, you know. I don't. You don't, I don't think. But it's the same with God. He's a little higher than us than the queen is higher than us, right? And unless he comes close, unless he invites us close, we will never get to know him. If he doesn't reveal himself to us, we will never get to know him and what he's like. But the good news is he has come close. The good news is he has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in providence. He reveals himself in redemption. Preeminently, he reveals himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the great instances of human arrogance is that I can know God on my own terms. Without God's help, without him revealing himself with me to me, without revelation, without the Bible, I can tell you what God's like. I know what God must be like. That's one of the most arrogant things a person can do. That doesn't even work in human relationships much less in talking about the divine, infinite, personal God. So, saying that then, how do we answer this question? Well, how do we know God? Well, obviously I'm pointing to Jesus. And Jesus points to himself in verse 9 here. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, that's what I like to call really thick smoke. What if Chris Appleby stood up here one Sunday and said, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Amy jump up and say he's nuts, right? I live with a guy, I know. You can't, I mean, this, but this is a carpenter. They've been following this guy around. They've seen his feet get dirty. They've seen him sleep in the back of the boat. He who's seen me has seen the Father. And it's not the only place he says that. In John 12, at verse 45, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. There's no, you know, here's the queen, here's me. Here's God, here's Jesus. And Jesus saying there's no gap. No gap. No gap at all. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is in me. And in verse chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus came to reveal the Father. And he did that in words and works. Let me show you that now from the Scriptures. He did that in words and works. He said, my words are his words, and his words are my words. My works are his works. His works are my works. He said that over and over and over 
in John's gospel. I want to challenge you to do this, unless you've got compulsions against this. Read John's gospel, at least the first, say, 17 chapters, and every time Jesus speaks about words and works, just put a, with your pencil very lightly, put a little circle around the word words or the word, around, or the word works. Because it's about eight or ten times for both words and works that Jesus says, my works are the Father's works, my words are the Father's words. Here's one of them in verse 24, uh, right here in chapter 14. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that, I, that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now, I've got seven or eight other places, but I'm going to spare you where he says almost exactly the same thing. What words does he speak from the Father? Well, words of invitation. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Words of invitation, right? Yes, words of invitation. Words of comfort. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Words of salvation and eternal life. We sang them earlier. Your sins are forgiven. What song was that, Chris? The second one? Son, thy sins are all forgiven. Second song we sang. That's Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Those words, good words, wonderful words, wonderful words to a soul that knows of its guilt, knows of its separation, longs to see and know God. Wonderful words, wonderful words. And works. Works. John 5, verse 36. This is just one instance of what he does with this. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So, he's saying, look, the words I speak, what, well, no, let me stop. What works does he do? The blind receive their sight. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. Waters turn to wine. Hemorrhages are stopped. The lame walk. Signs of the kingdom and what it will be like when Jesus comes back. What other works? Works of creation. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1, verse 3. Works of providence. He, Jesus, upholds all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1, verse 3. Works of salvation. Here's a work. A sinless life. A substitutionary death on the cross. A victorious resurrection from the day, dead. A glorious ascension into heaven. And by faith, a triumphant return to take his people to be with him where they are. Don Carson writes about it this way. Jesus is insisting that his words and works are the words and works of the Father. Thereby his Father has revealed himself in his Son. What they have been witnessing these past years as they have lived and traveled with Jesus is nothing less than the revelation of the Father in the Son. I and the Father are one. And so to reject Jesus is to reject the Father. 
And to accept Jesus is to accept the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. He who's seen me has seen the Father. I used to wonder what this verse meant. And, and this, I, I'm a slow learner, but I, this has helped me, this words and works and working it through, no pun intended, uh, with what Jesus is doing. In John 15, at verse 21, uh, he says this, kind of in the middle of verse 21 of John 15, they do not know him who sent me. And listen carefully. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have, been, now they have seen and hated both me and my father. And I used to wonder, well, why is it that Jesus says, if I hadn't come and spoken the words I spoke, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. If I hadn't come and done the, the works I did, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse. Well, what he's saying is very simple, and it took me a long time to see it. I've revealed the father. And the words I spoke reveal the Father. And so if you reject me, you reject the Father and you're guilty of sin. If you reject my works, you reject the Father and you're guilty of sin. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. That is the Father. So, I hope. This goes without saying, but I need to say it because preachers are supposed to bring their sermons to a conclusion, right? So let me just say it. How to have a personal relationship with a personal God. It's pretty clear, isn't it? You have to have a personal relationship with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How can I have a personal relationship with His Son? Well, I need to listen to His words, and I need to study His works. And I need to think about them and meditate upon them. Because to know the Father, we must come to Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Right. Because the gap is zero. So to reject Jesus and say, you know, these people, I know the Father, but none of this Jesus stuff. Jesus said, that's impossible. That is impossible. Taste and see, said the psalmist, that the Lord is good. To taste is to try a mouthful of something. You mothers and fathers do that. Well, just try it, you know. Taste and see. You'll like it. Taste and see. I'm encouraging those of you who are skeptic, who are at a distance, who are afraid to come close, who, are, who don't know Jesus. Taste and see that the Lord himself is good. How to, grow, how to have a relationship with God, how to grow a relationship with God, well, it's the same, isn't it? I've got to study his words, I've got to study his works, and I've got to talk with him in prayer, right? Don't be like the, the fifth grader that wouldn't talk to the girl. Don't be like, well, I, I'm not going to talk, I won't pray. God wants you to pray. God's interested in your prayers. God wants relationship with you. If he didn't want relationship with you, he never would have sent Jesus. Jesus was sent to restore relationship between himself in a broken, fallen, sinful world. So if you want to grow, if you want to come into the kingdom, it's the same. Study the words. Meditate on the works. Embrace the Son. Pray 
and get deeper and deeper and deeper. I'm amazed that it took me this long. I got my geezer card on my last birthday. And um, took me this long to really see what's going on in John 14 and this words work thing that you find all through it. It's kind of like you got a gold mine in your backyard and you, it, never, it never mines out. It never mines out. It never gives out a go. You, you'll never get to the bottom. And even in eternity future, when we get to know God better and better and better and better throughout all eternity future, we still will be mining gold, getting to know Him. That's good news. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for revealing yourself to us and your Son. Thank you for these words, words uh, like your sins are forgiven, works like his works in his life and death and resurrection. Help us to study them, to meditate upon them, because in knowing him and knowing them, we know you, which is our heart's desire. We pray through Christ. Amen.